What we have here in our waters is really, really special. Globally, there is a renaissance of appreciation for wild-caught seafood, and I'm hoping we see that that really sort of ignites a spark of interest in consumers here in Australia to recognise whether it's a sardine, whether it's a swordfish, that if they're offered that, whether in a retail store or in a restaurant, that they should be really excited about that offer because it's really, really special. And if we don't show that level of enthusiasm for wild-caught seafood, then it'll go, just as we've seen out of Port Phillip Bay. Today on Dirty Linen, we are going to undertake the perhaps ambitious task of wrangling all the discussions about seafood in Port Phillip Bay into one neat package that explains everything and makes sense of things that sometimes seem nonsensical. My guest to help me do this is somebody who knows pretty much all there is to know about the Australian seafood industry. He is also my compadre in on the Deep in the Weeds Network. John Sussman hosts Fishtails, a really great podcast about all things seafood. John, welcome to Dirty Linen. Hi, Danny, and uh, congratulations on an amazing series. Thank you so much. It's been so interesting for me to dip more than one toe into your world. Uh, how do you describe yourself when people ask you what you do? It's a really good question. Um, look, I sort of span the category from in, in sort of every regard from catching to cooking. Um, you know, I'm variously over the last 33, 34 years of of literally done pretty much everything in the seafood category um, and have, including sitting on various government boards and industry bodies and agencies and having investments in, you know, catching and processing and cooking business, seafood cooking businesses as well. So, um, and these days I spend my, my day job is still very much working with catchers and growers, bringing their seafood to market. Uh, and a lot of that work involves talking with chefs, distributors, retailers, wholesalers, to ensure that you know we're all sort of vaguely on the same page, but you're quite right. I mean, this business is wet, cold, smelly, slimy, and often you know very secretive. And that's, I guess, partly due to the fact that it's still predominantly wild capture, um, and hunters by nature tend to be quite secretive. I mean, ask any amateur fisherman where they caught their last fish, and they'll never tell you. Uh, strangely, that sort of transcends across to the commercial world as well. So, you know, and that perhaps is where some of the issues that we're going to discuss stem from is this sort of uh, lack of trust and general secrecy between uh, between all stakeholders. Yeah, so interesting because I feel like I've tried to talk to you know, representatives of all different stakeholder groups. So we've talked to a fisher, we've talked to a seller, we've talked to an environmental campaigner, we've talked to a wreck fishing representative, we've talked to a representative of the Victorian government, we've talked to chefs. Uh, and I would have to say that apart from a sort of nagging feeling of disappointment that things don't seem to be working out in the best interests of everybody. Uh, I, I would have to say I'm still a little bit confused. It's just it's just such a tangled web, or should I say, a tangled net? And look, you know, quite rightly, that's that is the case. I mean, you know, it, it's interesting because in discussing how you were going to approach this brief, um, you know, going into it it would have seemed quite obvious to have you know gone to all those stakeholder groups and been able to sort of draw out some consensus but you know over the last 7 8 podcasts we've we've learned that 
there isn't consensus and there's no consensus from the environmentalists through to the through to the recreational fishers um which is really kind of yeah you're right disappointing but it, it does also reflect how fractured the industry is and you know as an industry we tend not to have the same collegiate values that a lot of the terrestrial produ- you know, food producers have um, you know, which might sound strange to you know a couple of pig farmers that go toe to toe at the abattoirs when they're selling their their uh, their pigs. But it, honestly, I, I think it is. We we work in a very unique and very disparate industry, um, and that's kind of by nature how how it works as well. Because if you think about it, you walk into a butcher shop and and you know there's only three animals or four if he carries chooks, mostly. And yet you walk into a fish shop and there can be several hundred different animals that have come from you know, a range of different means of production, be it wild catch, be it aquaculture. Um, there can be in numerous numbers of ways that, uh, that they need to be handled. Um, and it's fragile. Let's not forget that it is the most fragile protein on the planet. And everyone in the supply chain is desperately playing past the parcel before it literally goes off in their hands. So, there are complexities that you've identified, and, and you know, as someone who's vested in the industry, I am disappointed that you're disappointed that you haven't been able to sort of really sort of uncover or clarify exactly, you know, what this is all about. But it is; it's it's a mess. Well, I think you know, there's there's disappointment in perhaps in the way that the seafood industry operates, but I think it's also about the way that stakeholder groups, lobbyists and government operate. So I guess that's not all on you guys. <laughs> that's on that's on society in general, just the way that uh, it seems like there's sometimes, uh, uh, I don't know, expedience or uh, pressure um, that perhaps isn't warranted. Uh, yeah, just people who want to flex a bit of muscle for their own interests and there isn't those checks and balances in, you know, the machinery of politics and the agencies that support, you know, the politicians or act on behalf of the politicians. Uh, there isn't, it feels like the interests of the broader public aren't always being looked after. Uh, look, absolutely, absolutely. And look, let's let's wind this back to Port Phillip Bay and look at the chronology of, of events. I mean, this started in, in 2014, just prior to the, the state election, when the Liberals and Nats had heard that the Labor Party were going to announce some dramatic changes to fishing regulations in Victoria and wanted to get a jump on them for political expediency. And they announced, they came out first and announced that these reductions were going to occur and these buybacks were going to occur. And, and so by the time you got to your state election in 2014, Labor had turned up the policy wick, if you will, to make those reductions and buybacks even more significant than the Liberals and Nats had originally proposed. So in reality, it got to that 2014 state election as a laydown Mazaire. It was going to happen. And it kind of happened without any real pushback from any part of the community. It, Seafood Industry Victoria at the time was led by a, a guy by the name of John O'Davey. And, and John O was adamant. He was desperately trying to circle the wagons around the commercial fishers to get them to realise what was happening. And, you know, even in when it was gazetted in 2015, in late 2015, there was a, there was a small meeting of about 100 of us that gathered at Rockpool in uh, Crown. 
um, including chefs and catchers and retailers and wholesalers. And there was a fair bit of anger at that time, but it kind of dissipated pretty quickly. And so roll forward, you know, six years now, and it's really been no one has been out there agitating for what was going on. And it's really disappointing. And, you know, this last seven days of your podcast has been amazing, but it's kind of been the only noise that's been made about this subject in the last eight years. So if you think about the fact that that political expediency, which was the, you know, flame to the touch paper of exploding this whole issue was eight years ago and we've done nothing about it since. The environmentalists have done nothing about it. The Greens have done nothing about it. Neither of the major political parties have done anything about it. The fishers themselves have basically been quite despondent. And, and indeed, if you think about the fact that of the 43 licences, over 30 of them were quite happy to take the payout. Now, you know, there's, again, mixed, mixed messages in that alone. Some of the intergenerational opportunities that were denied for the children of fishers um, were made by, you know, the old boys who just had had enough and wanted to get out. Um, others genuinely saw it as a means by which that they could, you know, get out of an industry that was really going nowhere. And so <laughs> there are all these complexities that, that really surround this particular issue. But I have to say that it's been a general level of recalcitrance across the entire community that has really led to this situation. So it's kind of like, no, it's dis the disappointment that I have is in everyone. It's in everyone sort of denying that, you know, had their head in the sand over this whole eight years while this went down. And it's, you know, regrettably, Victoria's not alone. I mean, you know, just in the past 18 months, we've seen a reduction in, in commercial catching quotas in Queensland of over 30%. In New South Wales, it's over 40%. South Australia, 35%. You know, wild catch seafood is so special, so, so special, and yet we're seeing it being taken away from us as a community um, for a whole host of reasons. And no one seems to be recognising that, you know, it is the most special protein on the planet. Well, uh I'm disappointed in myself that, you know, I did know about it years ago and I will just point out that, you know, Melbourne Food Journal Richard Cornish has been banging on about this um, for a while and that's probably where I first heard about it. And then, yes, um, Sasha Rust, who's been on the podcast and was one of the people involved in Good Fish, Bad Fish, he alerted me to it as well. And so there has been there have been a few efforts, but I think it hasn't really lit people up. As you say, you know, the fishing, you know, the fisher community is pretty disparate. Some people were happy to take the payout. I mean, there's so many, there's so much in all in what you've just said, because it makes me think, well, you need to not only allow people to fish commercially, but make these industries rewarding and viable. So it's not just about the fact that it's not banned. It's that it has to be, you know, a, a great industry that people want their kids to go in or they want it, or other people are attracted to it. So there's that side of it. But I think there's also something that Oliver Edwards identified um, in the podcast, a chef from Hazel, just about this general disconnect that people have with where their food comes from. And, you know, all that sort of, you know, the, the secrecy and, you know, the fact that it happens at odd hours, like all those aspects and all the various hands that seafood goes through. I mean, that 
all works against people sort of rising up in um, to fight for access to local wild-caught seafood. Yeah, look, I, I, I agree to a large extent there, Danny. I think that, uh, you know, there are a couple of things we need to unpack, perhaps, you know, um, in particular the supply chain and the complexities of the supply chain. And, you know, there are uh, a number of hands that, that are spread across the supply chain in seafood, but that's for practical reasons. I mean, seafood isn't a product that is as stable as, you know, other terrestrial products, foods. You know, it, it, it really does need, you know, a fairly nimble and dynamic supply chain to move the product, move seafood efficiently and quickly such that you can actually retain the quality of it on the way through. So whilst it's, it's, you know, sort of, I guess um, it's a motive to suggest that, you know, every chef should have a direct relationship with the catcher. The practicality of that just isn't there. I mean, you know, like it's bucketing down with rain in Sydney today, the beachside restaurants are unlikely to be busy. Uh, It's forecast to be fine tomorrow. And so chefs will look out the window and say, right, we need seafood for lunch. Um, Now (laughs) it's one thing to say, yeah, well, you know, we can ring, you know, Phil McAdam or Bruce Collis and, and you know, he's going to go fishing on Tuesday and, and we might have some fish on Thursday. But it's another thing to think, well, we need some consistency and continuity of supply. Um, and, and, and I genuinely argue that the reality of trying to distract a catcher to suddenly become, you know, a distributor, to suddenly become um, a retailer even, is is it's difficult. It's really difficult. I mean, as I said before, you know, wild catch fishermen, are opportunists, you know, they're hunters. They have to be able to respond, you know, dynamically to weather, fishing conditions, seasons, um, as well as market conditions. And if they suddenly find themselves having to answer phones or send emails or drive trucks or pack fish, um, and they've come in with a boatload of fish and a chef is looking for kilos of fish, that's a really difficult proposition. Um, and so I don't think that, you know, it's, it's, it's a popular sort of notion um, that's being proposed by a range of folk that there needs to be a more direct relationship. Well, that's all well and good, but, you know, I just don't think that there's a really practical solution in that, um, in, a, in reality. That's not to say... And that, but then that's not to say that you know distributors themselves aren't doing a great job. I, I mean, I know plenty of distributors that are that are transparent in their approach to letting you know their customers know where and when something comes from. I mean, you know, I've spent the last thirty three years getting provenance of seafood supply on menus, and you know, I think that there is a genuine you know desire for that. I don't, I, I, but you know, th- that's just one small part of this discussion. I don't think that that's you know, there's no one is precluding a fisherman from having a relationship with a chef, the the conversation is more about the practicality of that distribution model. Um, Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, things have to be done at scale to a certain to a certain extent. I mean, we're feeding millions of people. So there is, of course, that romance in food going hand to hand. But I guess I'm not what I'm not necessarily saying is that, you know, every chef needs to go to the boat. It's more that seafood needs to remain traceable. Um and that that provenance needs to stay with it, no matter how many hands it needs to go through to fulfil the needs of a you know complex supply chain. I, t- I totally agree. And you know, if there's been a frustration, you know, throughout my entire career, it's been you know through bad actors and fraudulent activity. Um, you know, the, at the end of the day, fraud is fraud, and it's you know in our Westminster Westminster system of law, it's illegal. So, you know, like anyone that is anyone that is sort of you know 
trying to tell fibs should be found out and prosecuted to the you know strength of the law. But you know, it's and look, you know, there are plenty of means that that can be done now. Um, you know, there's technology that provides solutions for that. Some of which you know Sasha discussed, and there's others that are you know even more advanced that allow allow for uh, geolocation tags to be placed on on fish, and and that can be traced all the way through. The re- the reality is that it gets back to the fundamental nature of the of the industry, and you know if if marketers have done their job to create awareness and understanding, and in fact demand for a particular brand or species, and the um, chef is looking for that but can't locate it, but realizes that it might be market advantage for him to put that on his menu, you know where do you start and finish that conversation? <laughs> It's 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 not just the intermediaries in that in that in that world of uh, of fraud that are occurring. You know, what what I'd love to talk to you about is the science because it feels like you know sustainability is front of mind for everybody who eats seafood, or it should be. It's like, is it okay to eat this? And it feels like it is such a confused space. It, you know what. what what is the data? Who are the bodies that are putting out the information that can be trusted? Yeah, okay. That's a good question. I mean, let's let's unpack that a bit. So here in Australia, we have um, 13 different jurisdictions that govern the commercial uh, harvesting, growing, and um, management of our fisheries. And that ranges from uh, recreational, indigenous, state, territory, and Commonwealth fisheries. So, you know, in, in the most simplistic terms, the states basically look after the science from naught to three kilometres, and then the Commonwealth looks out from three kilometres to 300 kilometres, which is our exclusive economic zone. So within the allocation of funding, of which there's approximately $140 million a year that goes into marine science investigations, the majority of that is actually in the Commonwealth. So... Our Commonwealth fisheries and some of those that, you know, we'd be most familiar with would be things like our tuna and our swordfish and the Bass Strait scallop fishery, for example. Um, They're managed with a very deep well of science. The state fisheries, as a generalisation, tend to have lower levels of science being applied to them because they have lower levels of funding applied to them. And so... Whilst, you know, if I'm trying to give a generalist response to the level of sustainability of Australian seafood, I say quite proudly that if you're buying Australian, then you are buying sustainable. You scratch beneath that a touch and it becomes a slightly more difficult issue to try and completely validate, particularly at state level. And then the complexity of how those states gather and manage that science and information is is also um, quite difficult to really explain in, in, in simplistic terms. We've got a number of, of agencies, including the CSIRO, including um, various universities that specialise in marine science uh, around the country that have, have, you know, tend to do the lion's share of the actual grunt work in terms of science recruitment and science management. And then you've got other bodies that like to that don't have the funding and don't have the resources, but have you know particularly strong PR mechanisms or machines that like to prosecute their opinions um, based on a lot of generalisations. Now that becomes a really difficult 
conversation because people think that that's just you know stone throwing when you start to sort of question the depth and level of science of some of those NGOs. But that's a reality. So, you know, a lot of the government science is boring and it's not very sexy and it's certainly not presented to market with any degree of polish. And that's why there are, you know, sort of other bodies that will emerge that will make claims, ambit claims based on generalizations that just don't have the scientific wherewithal or, or, or you know, library of data to actually validate. And it's and that's where it's a really difficult conversation, Danny. And I don't really want to try and, you know, poke fingers at particular bodies, but, you know, there are schemes and there are labels and there are third-party validators that make claims that, you know, some of which are just completely wrong and some of them, some of which are developed with proprietary commercial schemes in mind. <laughs> so I'm not clearing this conversation up, I know, but it's really, really tough. Getting back to the basic premise that if it's caught or grown in Australia, um, certainly in Commonwealth waters, it's a law. It's, um, you know, the, the um, Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Act of 1997. Uh, so, but once we start to get, as I said, once we get to the state level, it becomes a little trickier. But I still believe, I still maintain that we have good quality levels of science, both at state and federal levels, that can validate the resource, the, the size of the resource. Where it becomes even trickier, though, is where you've got interest groups that start to put their head above the science and start to really try and prosecute cases themselves. And that's, that's the difficult part to this whole conversation. But what would someone's motivation be for doing that? I can say, okay, so I can understand the commercial one. It's like if you're selling like Tassie salmon, like you're going to put forward a lot of information that tells people how amazing it is and how careful you are with the waters and how sustainable it is. I get that side of it. But somebody, a group that's just, I suppose, you know, uh, puts themselves forward as being on the side of the environment, what would their motivation be to um, say that a species is or isn't sustainable when the science doesn't back it up? It's a really good question. And I, I, I honestly can't answer it. I mean, can I take a case in point? Your good chums over at the Good Fish Project recently put a red label on Victorian octopus. And I have no idea on what basis they make that claim because that is a brand new fishery that of all the Victorian state fisheries has probably the most recent and deepest well of knowledge and science supporting that shelter trap fishery, which is, I mean, shelter traps are the most sustainable form of harvesting any animal. You know, the animal's got the opportunity to go in and go out of the pot. Um, and it's, you know, it has no detrimental effect on the substrate, on the, on the seabed. It's a tightly managed, highly regulated, brand new fishery, the volume of which is 67 tonnes. Like, you know, you and I at a decent sitting could probably eat that, you know. It's, it's and, and yet um, this particular NGO has decided to put a red flag on it. And then several days later, put a green flag on King George Whiting, which has got some fairly dubious science about it in other estuaries. So I don't know. What is the motivation behind that? Is it, is it driven by wanting to be, have a level of relevance and um, wanting to be seen to be of greater value or importance than, than, than others in that space? And it is a very competitive territory is the, is the sustainability piece. Um, you would have heard of the MSC, the Marine Stewardship Council, or the, or the Aquaculture Stewardship Council, which is their sister. 
I mean, that's probably recognised as the gold standard globally of what's called third-party sustainable certification. Um, And, you know, we have been involved in taking various fisheries through that process. Uh, It's... And, and I still have fairly robust arguments with uh, even Rupert Howe, the, the CEO based in London of the MSC, that some of their the elements of their investigations or the management of their their certification can be can be questioned. So it's really tough. It's really tough, and there is no simple answer. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons that I keep coming back to wanting to celebrate wild caught domestic Australian seafood is because. I, I do trust how it's being harvested and how it's being managed, and I do trust that it's you know good quality and that it's local. And so I think that we have to try and moderate the thinking around, well, you know, how much hand wringing and brow furrowing do we need to go through before we can start celebrating something? You know, and you know, I, I know it's digressing, but I get asked a lot to do events with a sustainable focus and I generally ask the restaurant or the chef or whoever the event organiser is, you know, do you serve French champagne? Do you serve sparkling mineral water out of a glass bottle from Italy? Do you serve Wagyu? And if the answer to any of those three questions is yes, I say, well, I don't see that there's any real reason for us to have a discussion about sustainability. I'm happy to come here and celebrate seafood, but I don't think that it's, you know, it's appropriate if you're going to be, you know, sort of oxymoronic in your approach to what sustainability actually constitutes. Well, I mean, just because I drive a diesel car doesn't mean I should abandon recycling. It's like you can you can pick a target and do your best there, and then perhaps that will flow on. It doesn't mean that you just throw your hands up and say it's nothing matters. No, I'm not. I'm not prosecuting that case. I'm, I'm saying that there has to be consistency, though. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not about throwing hands up. It's about saying, well, hang on, where is the consistency here? If, if we celebrate Wagyu, which is one of the least sustainable proteins ever known to man, why then should we target, you know, a, uh, a sheltered trap octopus? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, I suppose someone like Good Fish, Bad Fish makes it sound, seem quite simple because it's like, you know, red traffic light, green traffic light, it's okay or it's not okay. Your system also no, your system also makes it sound quite simple, which is basically like if it's Australian and it's in the shops, you can feel good about eating it. Um, and you're saying that, like, you know, the, the basis upon which that seafood is allowed to be there in the first place is based on science. It's only there because um, it's there are, you know, sustainable catch limits. Um, so, I mean, I suppose from a consumer point of view and from a chef point of view, you know, everyone's too busy. No one has time to, you know, do deep research into, you know, their shopping basket. Um People need it to be simple, but for some reason in this in this simplifying podcast episode, we're not making it simple at all. But Danny, that's what I'm that's what I'm proposing is that you know the most simple the most simple solution to this is we live in Australia, we pay taxes. Our taxes are used to build out a level of scientific support for our um, agri business, whether that's terrestrial or marine. I mean, I kind of think I have to trust the lawmakers to that to that point. Um, yeah, you know, that's so interesting because I feel like they're obviously, you know, around the world we've seen the level of trust in our governments and our institutions diminish. And I read a really interesting absolutely. thread on yeah. Twitter 
recently about, you know, this theory of governments that deliberately wreck trust uh, because then they're off the hook. It's like if people don't count on the government to keep an eye on things and to manage things properly, then in the end the government, people don't expect it from the government, so then they'll, you know, they'll strip away and strip away and strip away. So I actually think you're really, you're really onto something. It's like a lot of people actually probably don't trust the, the institutions to make sure that things are okay. And why should they? Because you can see things falling apart in quite fundamental ways all around us. Yeah, look, I, I, I guess that's, that's a position. Um, somewhere in the scheme of things, I, people have got to trust someone. Um, and to, to your point, I mean, you know, simplifying such a complex discussion down to, you know, red, yellow, green um, is, is fine. And maybe as an industry, we need to do a bit of internal, you know, looking and think, well, you know, if an independent NGO can get that level of trust through simplifying the discussion down to that point um, without necessarily having any sort of means to justify or validate that that traffic light system then if that's the level of of simplicity that the the audience need then we need to do something about it and and look as we started this discussion as an industry we are sort of we are our own worst enemy we we have a great deal of difficulty in in operating collegiately operating with any sort of collaboration you know, the tuna guys don't see any value in the oyster guys and the oyster guys don't understand the wild catch barramundi guys. And, you know, it, it's it's pretty difficult trying to herd these cats. So, yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's complex. Do you think it should be seen as one industry? We have a peak industry body called Seafood Industry Australia. It's it's relatively fledging. It's sort of four years old now. Um, and, you know, they probably... Of the five or six attempts over the last 34 years that I've seen for the industry to have a, a national body, this one probably has the greatest show. It's got a it's 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 developed a level of of um, of uh, momentum, and is now sort of really, really sort of beginning to to make way. And it's led by a ferocious and fearless leader in Veronica Papacosta, who is showing some really good strength in trying to you know really forge some direction but it's still really hard and as i said before you know like there's there's so many mixed um economies within the seafood industry that make it really difficult you know you've got a little mesh netter down in corners inlet who's probably got you know maybe thirty thousand dollars worth of assets and an annual income of you know a hundred thousand dollars and then you've got a you know uh, a tuna business that's got you know 40 million dollars worth of assets and you know 15 million dollars a year worth of revenue and they're supposed to have the same level of understanding um for each other which is pretty pretty impossible Mm. can you just give us a little rundown you know we've spoken to various bodies uh in this series um victorian fisheries authority seafood industry victoria can you just give me a little rundown on how you see all those different stakeholder groups fitting together okay so seafood industry victoria is the representative body for the commercial catches victorian fisheries uh, authority is the government agency that is responsible for managing not just the commercial fishers but for the indigenous and recreational as well um so theirs is a slightly broader level of um i guess uh responsibility and um you know it 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 is it is a really there is a dark art to trying to manage all of those different 
stakeholders. Um, and I don't, I don't envy that job by any means, but it, it, it's clearly, you know, something that has got a, a, a very difficult, you know, there's a very, there's a fine line between sort of appeasing and, and frustrating the various parties and various stakeholders. So, and, and then sitting a, across the top of that, you've also, as we meant, discussed before, you've got the, you know, the various sector, uh, sector bodies and your sector, uh, and then you've got the Commonwealth bodies sitting as well. So yeah, there's, there's quite a few different sort of stakeholders that make it a really complex process. And what about an organisation like Future Fish, which represents some wreck fishers? Yeah. So the wreck fishers uh, have, you know, they, they are, you know, they, they are nationally and, and state-based tend to be very well organised. Um, and they tend to probably come to the discussion with a slightly different view um, because by nature they are recre- it's their recreation. So, you know, indifference to the guy who's trying to catch fish for a living uh, or harvest fish for a living, they are coming to it, well, this is what I'd like to do on the weekend or this is what I'd like to do on a Tuesday afternoon or whatever it might be. So by nature... You know, people um, tend to be quite vested in their recreation, recreational activities, uh, at a di- with a different with a different lens than you know the commercial guys. And that's so. That's why you know. Again, I, I, I don't have a simple answer for that because it, it, it's really difficult. From my observations, though, uh, a lot of the rec groups tend to be far better organised and 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 strangely f- more committed to the process of, of, you know, changing legislation in particular for their purposes, for their needs. Yeah, it just makes me think of, I don't know if it was Scott Morrison or whatever, like he's going to he's gonna take away your weekend. It's just like, oh, <laughs> better vote, better yeah. vote for the guy who's going to keep my weekend. Um, yeah, you're right. People do get very passionate about their recreation, but for some reason, yeah, less passionate or perhaps not as connected to the idea of eating wild-caught local seafood, you know, in a restaurant or buying it in the supermarket, whatever it is. All right, so, okay, John, give me, like, the big wrap. What should I have got out of this series where you know what what should what should i be thinking okay so my big pitch to you danny about all of this and i know that and again congratulations on a undertaking this really really difficult journey of trying to understand the world of seafood um and b sort of being so committed to the process because i've you know like total respect to the way that you've approached this task and and what you've got out of it and then the results that you've done and the way that you've approached it in a really impartial manner. What I'd really like for you to take out of this whole discussion, though, is the fact that we have, you know, very highly managed fisheries. We have an amazing natural resource, albeit that it's a very special one. I mean, don't forget that in the scheme of things, we've got the second largest exclusive economic zone for fishing in the world and after the United Russian States. And yet we're about a number at 129 or 130 in production. We simply don't have the volume of seafood in our waters that, that live in other parts of the world. You know, with the driest continent on the planet, the water table that feeds our continental shelf is very light in nutrient. So what we have here in our waters is really, really special. And I think that, you know, there is a rena- globally there is a renaissance of appreciation for wild-caught seafood. And I'm hoping we see that that really sort of ignites a spark 
of interest in consumers here in Australia to recognise whether it's a sardine, whether it's a swordfish, you know, whether it's a, a, um, a sand whiting, that if they're offered that, whether in a retail store or in a restaurant, that they should be really excited about that offer because it's really, really special. And if we don't show that level of enthusiasm for wild-caught seafood, then it'll go, just as we've seen out of Port Phillip Bay. Yeah, well, I guess it's um, it's a shame if losing access to some wild-caught seafood uh, inspires people to fight for the fisheries that remain, but perhaps that's just the way it is. Uh, I, rem- I remain hopeful that uh, the sardine fishery will be able to return to Port Phillip Bay Um uh, I don't know if that's likely or possible, but I reckon I'll keep at that one. Uh, and in the meantime... Yeah. Yeah. It would be, an, be an Australian first if it does, which would be fantastic. But there's not a, not a very deep history of fishery, uh, fisheries judgments being reversed. Oh, well, we love firsts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but in the meantime, yeah, I will definitely value and appreciate and celebrate the wild-caught seafood that is still available to me. Thank you so much for taking on the difficult, perhaps impossible task of wrapping this series up into a neat bow, but definitely appreciate your efforts and expertise. Thanks, John. Thanks a lot, Danny. Cheers. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.